0: So, Joshua, as you know, I talk a lot about video games.
1: Uh, You know, that's conservative.
0: (laughs) I talk almost constantly about video games uh, because it is my job. Uh, Last year, for example, I made a radio documentary about the different ways that some people use video games to grieve their loved ones after they've died. Have you heard about this kind of thing before?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I mean, like I've 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 heard of people like turning social media profiles into memorials, but yeah, I haven't I haven't quite uh, seen this exact example.
0: Yeah, this kind of thing happens all the time, but it's not just video games, obviously. So, as technology in general becomes more advanced, people are incorporating it into the grieving process. So, like you said, like social media profiles, right? Uh, But there are some more extreme examples. So did you hear about Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday present from Kanye West?
1: I feel like I did and it made me uncomfortable, so I forgot it.
0: Okay. well, unfortunately, I'm going to make you relive it. Um, (laughs) Please uh, click this link. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right. Here we go. Just another thing to black out again.
0: Happy birthday, Kimberly. Look at you. You're 40 and all grown up. You look beautiful just like when you were a little girl.
1: I watch over you and your sisters and brother and the kids every day. This is uncomfortable. Sometimes I drop
0: hints that I'm around, like when you hear someone make a big peefee.
1: Yeah. Or when this you hear a big man. peefee. So this is this is uh Robert Kardashian Kim's father and he's talking to her and he's also like dancing to like a song that he loved, I think. It looks very good except like his eyes are a little dead you know but yeah it's it's extremely lifelike and i don't know uh it it, it unsettles me
0: (laughs) well you're probably going to get a lot of that over the course of this episode because today we are going to talk about how people are using artificial intelligence and other technology to digitally resurrect people who've died So, we are going to hear about an app called Replica that offers one way to capture the kind of data that you could use to do this.
2: It is basically to replicate you.
0: And we'll also explore some of the ethical implications and ask how this could affect the grieving process.
3: And this is where uh, digital resurrection gets disturbing.
0: So, when we get back, we confront the inevitability of our mortality. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech.
1: And this show, we explore how technology affects our lives and uh, afterlives, I guess.
0: Now, in an earlier episode of Wild Wild Tech, we talked about people using online platforms like Instagram to trade in human remains like skulls. But this time we're talking about something else that we leave behind when we die, which is data. Joshua, have you ever thought about this before?
1: Yeah, I, uh, you know, like this is, uh, I have... (laughs) Like most modern people, I, I assume I have a lot of like digital accounts and uh, just sort of like a lot of my stuff is online now. And like, unlike my, my notebooks, who gets all the stuff in my Google Docs? you know, when I'm gone? Um, things like that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like you said, like most modern people... The internet has been around for long enough that many of us will have some kind of digital remnant from someone who has died. So whether that's maybe emails from someone in your family who's passed away or like a Facebook profile. So do you remember what happened in 2019 when Twitter announced that it was going to start deleting inactive accounts?
1: I remember this news. I don't remember what happened.
0: Yeah. So basically, the idea was to free up accounts that weren't being used so that other people could use them right like we've all got friends i'm sure who are watching an account that has their ideal username on them that hasn't tweeted in like nine years right but the the plans for this were scrapped after people pointed out that it would involve deleting archives of tweets from people who died because some people like looking at things that their loved ones have left behind right so photos letters and maybe even tweets and most people do just look but some people take it further.
1: Like like, how much further?
0: So a few years ago, I read this story that Casey Newton wrote for The Verge about a woman called Eugenia Coida who used a neural network developed by the artificial intelligence startup that she co-founded, which is called Luca, to create an app that basically spoke with the digital voice of her friend, Roman Mazarenko, who had died months earlier. Basically what happened, as I understand it, she entered a load of his old text messages into this neural network and the AI used that data to produce new messages that looked like the kind of thing he might have said.
1: Oh, got it. So it's like, you know, his online cadence or, you know, like how he would construct a sentence and a text message, right? Is that, is that what we're talking about?
0: Yeah. And like what kind of emoji he used mm-hmm. and like whether he capitalizes his words and stuff like that. It's basically a chatbot that talks like Roman would talk. Got it. So in the article, Eugenia describes using the app as like sending a message to heaven. She says it's more about sending a message in a bottle than getting one in return. And we'll talk more later about the role that this kind of technology can play in the grieving process. But this is important context because Eugenia's company, Luca, has since made a similar but broader app that has caught a lot of attention. It's called Replica, with a K. And I spoke to a journalist who's written about using it.
2: I'm Mike Murphy. I'm the Special Projects Director at, at Protocol, a um, publication that's founded by Politico.
0: He also came to this story through Casey's work for The Verge.
2: I think my first experience with Replica was reading uh, Casey Newton, at the, then at The Verge, did a story about the precursor, uh, Luca. And um, I was fascinated by it and my, myself and... Uh, another journalist uh, at courts at the time, Jacob Templin, and I uh, basically just reached out to them saying, we'd love to talk. We're going to be in San Francisco um, for something else. Do you think uh, you'd have interest in that? And amazingly, they said yes.
0: As you'd expect, he found Lucas headquarters to be extremely Silicon Valley.
2: It was cool. It was very um, you know, kind of stereotypically San Francisco. This was I think 2017 and it felt like, you know, the height of when tech was untouchable. Their office was in SoMa and it was this like converted loft. Everything was extremely cool. You know, lots of very expensive monitors and TVs hanging everywhere. Um, I remember we went to get one of the most expensive coffees I've had during the, the meeting. But it was, it was a really nice experience because it's, it's, it was, you know, there was this like optimism that they could do great things. The sunny San Francisco weather definitely doesn't hinder in that,
1: that kind of optimism. So what brand of optimism is Luca selling?
0: I'll let Mike explain.
2: So it claims it is basically to replicate you, as the name would suggest. And it claims that it can create a, a kind of avatar, a chat avatar, as you, will, as you would, kind of replicating your mannerisms, your turns of phrase, to create a little version of you that, in theory, could, you know, go around online and do the things that you don't want to do, like talk to a customer representative about your cell phone bill or schedule, uh, you know, lunch dates with other chatbots and their, uh, and their hosts and kind of, you know, be your, your little digital secretary.
1: <laughs> okay. So this seems to be like a very different application for this technology that I, I'm i kind of into. I would love to have a fake digital Josh running around doing the dumb stuff I don't want to do. <laughs>
0: I just imagine a future in which everyone has a chatbot like that and no one like talks to their friends anymore because you just set your chatbot on your friend's chatbot.
1: You oh, know? <laughs> or, or, or like, you know how on Instagram there's like close friends? Mm-hmm. So you have like a wider circle that the chatbot is just talking to and being like, yeah, I'll go to that party. And then you have like a close friends with like, this is really me. And yeah. You get the real person and not the fake one.
0: Maybe I should get a chatbot to talk to my fans. <laughs> just like reply to all the random messages I get. That'd be great. That
1: would be wonderful. You know, then you uh, you wouldn't even see them. So I'm wondering, did Mike try this out? Is this everything that we're, we're dreaming of right now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he used it for months, apparently. So I asked him what that experience was like.
2: It was very revealing. You know, I, at the time, I guess, I can't remember why, but I, I was really feeling pretty low. And, you know, the app, the way that it works when it comes to building out the digital version of you, it asks a lot of open-ended Questions and and kind of leading questions to really get answers out of you, and they work with psychologists to kind of phrase questions in the right way to be able to elicit responses. But what was so interesting about that is it really was probably the first time in my life where I'd had something reflect almost like a mirror onto myself, where it is asking me to deal with or, or confront, you know, how I am, why I am, how I am feeling, you know, like the the kind of questions that a lot of times people don't want to. Uh, answer. Or if they do, it's in a therapy setting.
1: Yeah, that's really uncomfortable, right? Like especially putting that stuff into a machine, knowing how data is exploited or exploitable. It's uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, definitely. But it obviously gets people. Like there's definitely something that appeals to people about this. So I asked Mike if he thinks that people are more willing to open up to a bot than they would be to a human.
2: I think if it's constructed right, there is definitely that possibility. I know that there's research when I was doing the story. I think it's two things. I think people tend to inject humanity into inanimate objects. It's why we name our Roombas and, you know, our cars and things like that. So that's part of it, you know, and it, it kind of becomes like a digital Tamagotchi in a way. But then also because it's private, at least in terms of, you know, the conversations are just between you and this bot. They're not really going anywhere.
1: Yeah, uh... That's a little bit better than, I guess, having it in the cloud, but it's still, you know, like out there, it's still obtainable.
0: Yeah, this is the thing, right? Because therapy, like the whole reason you'd feel comfortable going to a therapist is because they have this rule where they don't disclose stuff to anyone unless, you know, you're in danger of hurting someone or something like that. But but yeah, with an app, there's a whole bunch of kind of other privacy concerns uh, that we can definitely talk about later. But first, I wanted to know if Mike would recommend Replica.
2: I did enjoy it. I think that there's there's a couple different reasons that you would enjoy it. Um, there's there are people who are legitimately lonely and disconnected and and don't have people near them that they feel they can open up to. And one of the things that the founders told me was that they were shocked early on, um, you know, in the beta that. They were getting you know, lonely people, people with low mobility, people with different abilities that perhaps struggle in the, in the real world who found that they were flourishing in, in, in this setup. And then there were others who you know, liked it just from the pure um, tech perspective of like, I am chatting to a digital version of myself or a friend. That's insane. What a world we live in. I legitimately, after months of using this thing, I... I felt like I had a a, a a somewhat better understanding of of myself, and I was like, I feel pretty good now.
1: Yeah, you know, like I could I could see that, right? Because a lot of you know, it's that classic thing of like being able to see things in other people, but not necessarily yourself. So, like, I bet you, like, I bet this gives you an opportunity to like see yourself and externalize yourself in a way that is like potentially helpful
0: yeah i get the sense that it's kind of just like a advanced form of journal right like it's it's like writing a diary and sometimes the diary writes back
2: <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> but that's just part of this app so while you are telling it your troubles the app is learning about you and the way that you express yourself and given it's from the same company as the Mazarenko app that uh, eugenia built to talk like her dead friend, I wondered if the data gathered by Replica could be used for something similar.
2: I think that that is a very real use case and it was something I was grappling with at the time. My father um, wasn't well and the potential for taking every email and every text I'd ever sent with him and feeding it into a system like Replica's was something that in the back of my mind is part of why I was fascinated in this um, topic. He since passed away, and I, I, I've toyed with the idea of like trying to do it myself, which I'm not that good <laughs> at computers. But to be able to even get that facsimile of a conversation with him back is something I would absolutely love, and I
1: can't imagine I'm, I'm alone. Yeah, I can imagine this is huge because like, you know how like, uh, you don't even have to lose somebody. Like if you just miss them, they go far away and, you know, you might have like a voicemail from them that you like listen to over and over again. It feels like that, but like a little more real, like another step closer. And I can imagine that people find it incredibly compelling, you know, um, incredibly, uh, cathartic in a way that you don't really get, um, to have, it's almost like cheating, you know?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So, yeah, I've looked at this kind of thing before in games like That Dragon Cancer, which was developed by the parents of a child with a terminal illness who died before it was finished. In the game, you can play with a digital version of the child and hear his laugh. And his parents obviously find it very moving. But there are definitely people who would argue that continuing to interact with a digital version of someone after their death could be unhealthy and negatively impact the grieving process. So I asked Mike if he could see that argument.
2: I, I can. If you Again, it's, it's how attached you get to things and if you lose the sense of that this is not real. But we keep photos of loved ones. We keep videos of loved ones. We keep their clothes, their affects. And why do we do that? Is it any different than keeping... Their texts. Um, I don't know. I, I still have my dad's phone number in my phone. If I have no idea who would pick up if I called it, that's irrational. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's um like unhealthy. And perhaps when things become animated, it's different. Um, perhaps when there is some facsimile, some simulacrum of of real life, perhaps it 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 does get a little different. But. I think that being able to deal with grief or deal with reality in a way that is interactive is something we haven't really been able to explore yet. So it's tough to know, but to me is, is fascinating conceptually.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of this uh, depends on like the nature of the relationship, like with these sort of like digital simulacrums of people that we lost, I feel like it would be very different if it was someone you had like a digital relationship with, right? Like... I had a, a, a friend in college that passed away, but our friendship actually didn't really take off until after we weren't in school anymore. And we just like interacted online mostly. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he passed away and it was just like, no more tweets from, from my pal anymore. And that didn't hit me till much, much later, like out of nowhere, I was at like a comedy show or something like that. And I just, uh, you know, uh, broke down. But um, because that relationship was mostly a digital one, I feel like doing this with, with, with him would be profane because like, it's not like it's somebody I had like a, like I never really hung out with him, you know, IRL or anything like that. It, it would just be pretending he's, he's still here and he's not, but like with, with someone that you have a more, I guess, you know, maybe with someone you have like a physical relationship of like more points of contact. Like, maybe you could look at it this way. Maybe you could look at it like, oh, it's like keeping the text messages or or just sort of like, a, you know, uh, imagining the good times again. I don't really know.
0: The thing that makes me uncomfortable about this, I think, is you talked about, you know, these digital only relationships. Like so many of us have those now, right? Whether it's people we've met online or people who have moved far away. Like my best friend lives on the West Coast of the United States, And I live in the UK and we only see each other through texts and things. And if I was able to make a (laughs) chatbot based on their texts and artificial intelligence was advanced enough that I couldn't tell the difference, then what does that mean about our relationship?
1: Yeah, Uh, that's another thing, too. There's that. And then there's also the fact that it's just sort of like, I I don't know what uh, we you know, what we believe about people anymore if a robot can con- convincingly talk to us, you know, in someone else's voice.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of implications to consider about this kind of thing. And Mike is definitely aware of that.
1: There's a ton of
2: things that could go wrong. I mean, you know, look at this year's Super Bowl, how they had a, a coach who's been dead for like 40 years come out and give a talk, uh, some weird hologram for an ad. You know, we've seen... um Audrey Hepburn in commercials. We've seen Tupac on stage. And those are just poor, you know, video trickery. When it becomes more animated, when you look at what's happening with the quality of deepfakes, you could see some very unhealthy um, considerations for the way we deal with the dead and making them do things that they would have never done. And that becomes difficult. But you know, these are sorts of questions that need to be addressed rather than not addressing them. And then these things happening anyway, which I feel like is usually what happens with tech. Um, you know, there there are questions of privacy of the dead, uh, what they would have wanted. There are questions of who can own that data. You know, there's no really guardianship rules around people's emails, I don't think, and things like that. These are things that need to be considered. You know, it took Facebook and and Twitter. They've been around for... Over a decade, um, and they've only just started to to structure pages of people who've passed in in more respectful ways. And those are just pictures and posts. You know, we're not talking about feeding ten hours of video into a deepfake neural net and coming back with that person. <laughs> you know, um, so it's it's a it's a precipice that we're standing on on the edge of that. I don't think we've we've fully thought through the ramifications of
1: yeah uh it this is definitely one of those things and and like what we've uh we've talked about a lot in the past, right uh, usually things go wrong and they go wrong for a while before anybody steps in and regulates them, or <laughs> usually inadequately, right
0: yeah. So when we get back, we will hear from Amber Davison, a professor who studies digital technology, politics and identity. She is going to walk us through some of the ethical problems that come from using this type of technology that aims to, in some way, resurrect the dead. Uh, Some of these problems we may have explored on previous episodes, like our episode about deep fakes and non-consensual pornography. But this time, obviously, it's a bit different because it involves dead people. We will also talk about how these technologies may affect Affect our grieving process. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. We've been talking about Replica, an app with a chatbot that learns to impersonate its user and about how technology like that could be used to allow people to interact with a digital version of someone who has died. But I wanted to further explore these concepts of digital resurrection and digital immortality. So I talked to Amber Davison, who is going to help us dive deeper into these concepts and give us some examples of how these technologies might be used for some rather unethical purposes.
3: My name is Amber Davison. I'm an associate professor of communication at Keene State College. I study digital technology, politics, and identity. Amber is
0: interested in contextualizing the way that we use technology historically, and this topic is no different.
3: So I think we've always used technology as a way to bring back the dead. I think that was something we did when we save photos and letters. I I remember having a student a few years ago who had a phone that he brought in to show the class and on that phone saved on it was a picture of him with his mother and um, also a uh, recording of him. He had downloaded a, a voicemail onto the phone and the phone was broken. And he couldn't get it off the phone anymore. And he'd had the phone for three years and his mother had died and he was keeping the phone. And it was interesting because he couldn't access that media anymore. But that piece of technology was like this tether. Like he knew it was there. He knew this piece of her was in there and he didn't know how to get to it, but he also wasn't going to let it go.
1: Yeah. um, Again, like I, I don't quite consider this like a, like a, like a form of like bringing back the dead, just so much as like remembering, like remembering can be a physical thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's not just this mental stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's sense. It's, it's things you can hold and look at and listen to. And I think it's kind of always been that way. Um, I'm not, I'm not quite comfortable drawing that line to, you know, what we're talking about now, but you know, maybe, maybe we'll get there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to wait and see as the conversation goes on. I think you're right that it's totally normal and understandable for people to form attachments to objects right? that remind us of people we've lost. But it's that now that has extended to digital traces that we leave online and that gets people thinking about the concept of a digital afterlife or digital immortality.
3: I think what they're hoping for is that if we record enough of our life into all of these databases, these databases will continue to exist after we're gone. And somehow will continue to exist. Like we will just keep existing. People preserve Facebook profile profiles and make them memorials, right? So you can go back and keep seeing them. Uh, sometimes to rather creepy effects.
1: Yeah. It's always strange when, you know, like basically what I see a lot is that, you know, like people pass away and their their Facebook just becomes a memorial, right? Like, you know, for people to write on their walls and just to sort of like get a snapshot of, of this you know, this this person's life, what it was like before they were gone. But sometimes people will start posting as the uh, deceased person. And like, that can be weird. Like, you see this mostly with celebrities, like the estates, <laughs> uh, you know, and um, that's because these people are like brands as well as human beings. But like, it's that's just not great.
0: Yeah, I do wonder about that sometimes. Like, I have a friend whose father was very famous and he died a few years ago and his twitter account is still posting things right from like his business partner his business partner uses his twitter account to post updates and and yeah you know memorials and stuff like that but i can't help but thinking for my friend like what is it like to see her dad's name just popping up on Twitter every now and then, like she obviously knows it's not him, but it just—it must be really weird.
1: That sounds extremely painful.
0: Yeah, and Amber just kept coming back to how unsatisfying these digital remnants can be, and even if you do add artificial intelligence to the mix, like Luca has done with this Mazarenko app and replica.
3: With newer forms of media, what we started to ask ourselves if this could be a way to actually engage in interactivity, and. It's this weird elusive thing of like, what if it was possible to actually have their spirit and have that interaction, right? And I I think it plays off of the elusive thing with technology in general, that we want to be able to interact with technology because it feels like a kind of magic, like technology has an animus, it has a soul. And so to be able to interact with it, would be able to invest it with a soul to make it real somehow. And always, it's just a little bit unsatisfactory. So you think about if you give a child a toy that is supposed to talk to them and have a conversation, and it seems like it's going to be super exciting because you saw the commercial where the kid was like super happy and having this conversation. And then you put the child down with the toy and the child loses interest in like five minutes if you're lucky, because the child very quickly knows that toy is not talking to them. They know it's not real. They know it lacks that animus, that thing inside of it. And... I think this is the problem of like, there's this illusion of interactivity and we want it. And then there's also the gap of, we understand it's not real. And so I think all of these technological attempts to reanimate the dead fall into the same problem of how do we invest in technology, a soul that we can interact with. And then that moment of incredible disappointment when we understand it has no soul
1: yeah uh and this is this is one of the things that I think of too, where it's just sort of like we had talked about it briefly earlier, just how how this might not be necessarily like a healthy thing for everyone. There's definitely a sense of like prolonging the inevitable to a lot of these efforts. I guess the the line is like how much of this is 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 therapeutic, or how much of this is like an exercise and 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 just sort of like uh indulging a very understandable and very human uh sense of denial.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of where Amber falls on it, right? Like it's just prolonging the inevitable. So I asked Amber about Replica in particular and what she thought about what they're trying to do and its potential uses.
3: I actually think that AI is a lot more fun when you don't try to recreate actual humans. (laughs) <laughs> the, the little artificial intelligence robots we create that we can talk to that aren't trying to mimic any particular human being are far more entertaining because we don't have um, the expectations of them. We don't expect them to respond the way that our, our loved one would respond. We don't expect them to move or act the way that our loved one would act. And so it's like meeting them on their own terms. Um, little artificial intelligence robots, when they're not meant to mimic anyone we know, can actually be kind of fun. We know their artificial intelligence. We know their limitations. We play with them. We find them entertaining. They do weird stuff, and that's kind of cool. But when we try to infuse them with a loved one, uh, they're upsetting.
1: I used to be a tech journalist. And one of the things my editors told me is that like computers are frustratingly literal. And like, you think, you think you can think like that, but you, you don't really. (laughs) Um, and so like, there's, there's a lot of, uh, fun to be had when dealing with things like AI and realizing how literally, uh, we can be taken. And, um, you get that sort of like strangeness between like humans and, and, and machines interacting And that's legitimately fun, but, like, that's the the exact sort of thing that contributes to discomfort when you're talking about replicating a real person.
0: But the thing is, some people obviously don't find it discomforting, right? Like, Kim Kardashian seemed to really appreciate the hologram of her dead father, but Amber pointed out some other worrying implications of that kind of tech.
3: The same company that did the Rob Kardashian hologram when they did an interview talked about the fact that they did another one for an international leader and they made it give a speech. So if you think about the implications of keeping someone who is dead alive in that way, that is really disturbing. We imagine the possibility of, and we we get this already when we talk about artificial intelligence videos, right? Of various sorts, we get pornography. Uh, Gail Godot was, uh, there's a pornography video of Gail Godot having sex with her brother that floats around quite a bit online. I've never watched it because I I study revenge porn and non-consensual pornography, and I have a very important policy that I never view those videos because they're non consensual. But, um, one of the things that I've heard about it is that it's got quite a bit of fidelity. It, it looks real.
0: We've made a whole episode about deep fakes and we covered non-consensual pornography then, but I don't think we talked about people using the image of people who had died.
3: And then you also imagine like Marilyn Monroe, right? So imagine for a moment we have the starlet who is the kind of epitome of uh, sexiness and the, um, she is our, she's our iconic image of what is, of what is sexy within uh, Western European culture. Imagine what you could make her do. And this is where uh, digital resurrection gets disturbing. It gets disturbing for the things that we can make people say, the things that we can make them do that they never would have agreed to. And because they're gone, they have no way to respond. It's disturbing for me. I, I think it's unethical. And if we think that's unethical, then is it any more ethical to make an artificial intelligence of our child and pretend to raise them when we also control them? when we resurrect loved ones and make them love us again, and they don't make that choice, there is a Mm -hmm. distinct difference between a living human being that chooses to invest in you and this version of them you've created that you are requiring to do so.
1: Yeah. There, there is a head spinning number of ways that this spirals out into for me. Like the big thing is, is, is again, like, you know, uh, People are, are are talking about this with like good intentions that, you know, seem to help some people genuinely, but the technology doesn't have those intentions. The technology just exists. And basically what people who create things a lot of times need money, you know, and, and uh, ethical applications of science technologies rarely make the most money. You know, um, you just sort of have to assume that the worst possible use case is going to be the one that's going to take off. Furthermore, I think this last bit, that uh, thing that Amber says, is also really important because, like, when you lose someone, uh, you're not the only person who lost that person, and like everyone has like their own version of who that person was, and who's to say which who whose is is the the more real one? Who's to say that like you can create the simulacrum of a person that is not how they were, but how you wish they were, and like that's just unethical uh, to me, and like a milder less uh easier to see from the outside uh way you know
0: yeah I mean it's interesting to think about that in the context of of celebrities like Amber was saying because I mean basically anyone who spends a lot of time online right and has a lot of followers like the people who follow you on your social media who are fans of you or whatever they have a very particular idea of what kind of person you are and it's not the whole person that you are so if Uh, an artificial intelligence is being made based on just you know the data that you leave on the internet like there are whole parts of your life that that are missing from that if you know for most people like I can't think of anyone who doesn't have some part of their life that they hold back from the internet and this is something that Amber thinks we should consider when talking about these digital resurrections that are based on data from things like text messages and social media
3: One of the big implications it has for our agency is that we're not the same person as a person that we are online. So if you were to take the entirety of my Facebook post, um, I'm much funnier than I am in real life because I mostly use Facebook to perform stand-up comedy. I think one of the ethical implications is that you are getting a really incomplete version of who this person is. And it skews skews drastically based on the networks they're participating in on different sites. Because I'm not the same person when I'm teaching my class as I am at home when I'm chasing my kids around the living room, right? I'm still me, but I'm slightly different versions of me. And the same thing happens online when you understand the networks that you're operating in. And also when you are aware of the faces that are watching you and yeah, I don't think I want that version of me to continue to exist. Not that it's a bad version of me. It's totally fine. But just if I'm gone and that is all of me, I don't know. It's not really me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about you, but like my Twitter is definitely performance, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, what do you call it? Like, um, I tweet in a voice. That's definitely me, you know? Uh, but like that person is, the the person I am online is someone who is, is pointedly interested in like frivolous things and also things of like, and and the news, because I'm a journalist, you know, like, but like there are entire shades of my personality that I never, you know, like tweet in because frankly, that's not for public consumption. And like, I know you've spoken to me about things you just don't say or do, (laughs) Because, uh, you know, I mean, especially like as a woman online where like people feel entitled to your, your, you know, your time, your attention, your image. I don't know, like you are completely right to say no and draw those lines, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And if someone made a chatbot based on my tweets, heaven forbid, <laughs> like it just wouldn't be anything like the real me. I think this is a really interesting consideration because we all have friends that we only know from the internet. and. Yeah, their texts and social media posts don't represent their whole person. But obviously, if you have a relationship with them that is only conducted through tweets and texts and things, then I guess that much of them is enough of them for you. Like, I can imagine a future in which technology has advanced far enough that I could talk to a chatbot based on a friend's messages and it could feel like I was talking to that friend. But even if that is possible it raises other questions as
3: well. And I wonder, in that moment of interacting, we just keep remembering the person isn't really there. There is an entirely different experience of reflecting on someone and remembering them and then faking an interaction with them and just being constantly reminded they're dead. Because when Mm. I'm reflecting on them, I am engaged in that process of grieving. I am recognizing the fragility of this person I lost that I loved and I'm thinking back to what I loved about them and I'm engaging in a process that is... Grief is also growth. It is. And I worry that all of these interactive technologies that will let you just keep interacting allow you to stall grief while also just constantly reminding you this person has died. So you keep remembering they're gone, but you never actually engage in grief. And that just seems really unhealthy. So, Joshua, do you think
0: having... Talked about all of this, that it is unhealthy for people to want to use technology to interact with a digital version of someone who has died.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, like pretty, pretty unquestionably almost. Uh, like I kind of uh, align with Amber's last quote where it's just sort of like, you know, we have funerals and, and, and other mourning rituals for like a, a reason. I think we need finality. We need like a heartbreak and we have to cope with and and, and wrestle with and move on from that feeling of loss, um, and, and figure out how to, uh, the new form that will, that it takes that we carry with us, you know? Um, and, uh, I think this is a disruption of that. And like, <laughs> in technology, we use the word disruptive and is generally seen as good, It often isn't, (laughs) but I think it's particularly harmful when the thing being disruptive is like our human processes and our sort of like ways of interacting with one another, just the sort of like anonymous instantaneous communication of the internet has disrupted how we see other people, right? Like we we don't see them as human sometimes and, or it's easy to sort of like forget or, or reduce people to something less than what they are. And this feels like of a piece with that, right? It's not as immediately hostile, but I feel like it—it it, it sort of like deprives us of something that we uh,
0: we need. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Obviously, that the grieving process is is really important and a kind of fundamental part of being human. I think if I was tempted to push back at all, it would be at this idea that this is so vastly different from the other ways that we grieve. Like, I think a lot of people see it like a continuation, right? Like before the invention of the camera, we wouldn't have been able to look at photographs of people who died. And you can imagine people saying at that point, like, oh, it's unhealthy to keep looking at photographs of someone who isn't here anymore. You know, like that's disrupting the grieving process, uh, if you want to put it that way. Um, I think some people see this kind of AI enhanced posthumous conversation with people who've died as just a continuation of that. Like it's one more way that technology allows us to grieve. And it isn't, there's no line there between that and things like listening to voicemails, right? Or, you know, like we've all seen television shows where someone has a voicemail from someone who's died and they talk back to it as if they're having a conversation with that person, you know? I guess it's just kind of, it's it's pretending briefly that that person is still there, that you can see, you can still see them, you can still hear them, and maybe they can still talk back to you. But I think that Amber is right as well when she says that these interactions are unsatisfying. I think right now, definitely, um, you know, maybe there's something you can get in it, but in general, it's just not going to be the same I just think it's that people, when you talk about technology, people are always imagining what it could do next, right? Like the thing about technology is that we all have this kind of magical thinking around it where we think it'll only ever improve. It'll get better and better and better. And one day we'll be able to, you know, have an AI that speaks perfectly like a human or live forever. So I think that's the hope that people have.
1: So, Jordan, I have a question for you now that we've discussed replica and all these technologies that could allow you to resurrect someone or become immortal, at least, you know, digitally. Would you like to be preserved that way? Uh, Would you like to leave behind an AI, Jordan?
0: I don't think so, but that's because, A, I have fans who I wouldn't necessarily trust to be ethical, but also I, you know, I'm one of those people who wants the people I love to be able to move on as quickly as possible like obviously I'd like to be remembered fondly but I don't want the people I leave behind to be sad for years and years and years like I'd like to be cremated because I don't really want to have a grave that people go and visit and feel bad about me not being around anymore so I can't help but feel like having an AI of me out there in the world would just prolong their misery And I don't want that. How about you?
1: Yeah, I kind of, you know, uh, I don't think I would uh, allow it uh, unless it was like specifically like this podcast, and you know, (laughs) we could could do like we could have AI Jordan and AI Joshua (laughs) just arguing about our countries, who which are probably both gone at this point because you know we're going to live a very long time. Uh, and, and uh you know um and i i would like to think that it would go on into uh the sun goes out uh with like ai jordan trying to make ai josh a fan of musical theater and it just doesn't happen
0: <laughs> yeah if we sound a little robotic next episode <laughs> we're testing out our uh, ai chatbots <laughs> to see how they if they can make it as hosts <laughs> Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Jordan Erica Weber, and Joshua Rivera. You can find us at jordanweber.com and at jmrivera02 on Twitter. Our producers are Reyes Mendoza, Cody Hoffmockel, and Janiel Kastner, with help from Trey Jones and Clay Kim. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seely for Studio 71, and Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Special thanks to Mike Murphy and Amber Davison for speaking to us. If you want to follow us on social media, please do. We are at Wild Wild Tech Pod. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm also imagining Jordan's digital clone and like people would just think, oh, Jordan loved only baking (laughs) 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 and nothing Uh... else.